Genesis chapter 2 this evening. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God had ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. In the end of chapter 1, God uh, completes the uh, record of the first six days of, uh, of, you know, creation. He created everything, heavens and the earth, everything that is in them, uh, in those six days. But there's the seventh day to the week, and so as we go into chapter 2, probably would have been good to put a chapter break after verse 3 and uh, put all uh, seven days within that context. But... Um, it didn't, and so this now finishes things out. When the Lord rests on the seventh day, uh, it isn't because he's exhausted uh, or he's tired. Uh, that happens to us. He rests because he's finished. And uh, it isn't that he is physically resting or something. He ceases now uh, from his creative activity because he has created everything that he wanted to create. And so now he rests. Now we get told a little bit later in chapter 3 of what he does while he rests when we find that he comes into the Garden of Eden and, uh, and all in the cool of the evening, walking there, communing with Adam and Eve and all. So as he's finished his creative work and he rests, he takes the time now to enjoy his creative work. So he's going to rest a little bit. It's a day of rest for him, not physically, but to enjoy all that he has created. And there are some, you know, you've got type A's and type B's in the world, right? Type B's, you've got to help them stop rest a little bit sometimes and let them know there's work to be done. And then you've got type A's, you've got to, they almost need to have an example from God himself to rest in life. And there's that tendency for the type A to be all creation, and creative work and creative, 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 but it can't go on seven days a week. Even God takes and pulls back and enjoys what it is that he has created as an example to us. There is nothing wrong with being creative. God has called us to be that and being like him. But there is also to be that time set aside to enjoy what we have worked hard to do and to accomplish. And it isn't to be carnal or it isn't to be weak or fleshly. It is to be like the Lord. It's interesting that later um, in uh, the law of Moses, God would even uh, produce a uh, uh, call for a Sabbath rest upon the land. The land was to be rested. And you know what would happen to the land when it would be allowed to have its Sabbath rest? It would become more productive. God would make sure of it. 
And it is a funny thing, isn't it, as we serve the Lord and as he's called us, all of us, to do all of kinds of wild things all over this city and the surrounding cities in the world, how to have a day to pull back and rest makes us even more productive and creative and, and all for the things of the Lord. And so God takes and he rests here. Now, unfortunately, the Jewish leaders of, of uh uh, Jesus' day when, when uh, God firmly, you know, enacts the seventh day, the Saturday, the Sabbath is a day of rest in the law of, of Moses. They took and made it a means of self-righteousness before God. So far from being a rest, they turned it into another day to work hard to please God now. You know, we've worked hard all week and now this is the week that, uh, you know, uh, we wipe ourselves out trying to, you know, please him by an impossible standard that we've placed upon uh, ourselves. No intention that God had for even the Sabbath day under the law of Moses to be that kind of a day. It was a day to set aside. Think about how good God has been and how blessed uh, we are to know him and his work in our lives and the blessings uh, in, in our lives. The writer of the book of Hebrews would later take that Sabbath and bring it into its, its fullness by applying it to our salvation and how it is that God has provided us with a finished salvation. Here is a finished creation that, we can, that God can rest in in all. And God has provided us with a finished salvation that we can rest in. There's no adding to it, no striving. It's to be enjoyed, what it is that Jesus has provided for us on the cross. When he cried out on the cross, it is Finished, And so if anyone tries to bring you under the Sabbath, you know, law and, and all of those kinds of things, you refer them to Colossians chapter 2 in our teaching there. The point here is that God rests. And there's nothing wrong or unspiritual about resting and enjoying the fruit of our labors. Now, as he picks things up in verse 4, God does something interesting and very, very common in uh, Jewish methodology for teaching. Very, very common in Gentile. In chapter 1, he has given us a very terse, concise, fast-moving uh, account of the creation and given us the overview, given us the big picture. And having given us the big picture, now he wants to go back and give us a few more details on two or three things that he wants us to know a little bit more about. And so that's what chapter 2 is, is all about. And this is the history. The Bible here is a book of history. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And so he lets us know that in this uh, phase of, of the history of the earth, there was no rain on the earth. It's not going to rain until the time of Noah's ark and the flood that comes forth from the rain, also the, the uh, water table underneath the ground coming up, the springs and, and all. The entire earth prior to the flood was watered by a very, very heavy, moist kind of atmosphere. Maybe I shouldn't say moist, but... Uh, uh, the
the, the atmosphere was diff very different from what it is today. And that's part of the reason for the longevity, as we'll see in the coming chapters, people living hundreds of years and these ultraviolet rays and different things breaking down uh, the human body and all. And so, but it was a, di a different atmosphere. Everything was watered just by the moisture in the air. No hoses, uh, farmers, no pulling those sprinklers out, getting up in the middle of the night to get the irrigation going and all of that. The whole earth was this very, very lush, uh, well-watered uh, place. And that's why when they dig down on the, uh, on the north and the south pole and different things or different things melt and they get access to places they haven't had access to, you know, in maybe hundreds of years and all, you know, they find all of this tropical vegetation and everything there. The whole earth was was just one kind of temperature, just like being in Hawaii in the spring or in the fall. And uh, very, very nice. Uh, summer isn't that great. Not for me, it isn't. But I'll go there anytime uh, anybody wants to send me there. But uh, it, it keep the air on. But I mean, this was a beautiful, beautiful place uh, to be. And God wants us to know that it was a little bit different. And I think it helps us to know then when the flood comes and it starts to rain, these folks had never known what rain was. It had never rained until then. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of uh, the ground. And so uh, don't scold your children for playing in the dirt. God a little bit of that himself. He tells us how he formed man. And, and the picture is kind of like a potter. Here he is, uh, a, a, a potter fashioning man out of the very uh, dirt from the earth. Interesting thing is the 17 elements that make up the dirt on this planet are the same 17 elements that make up the human body. Uh, perhaps you've heard the illustration that, you know, we're worth, I don't know, I've heard the illustration probably 15 years ago that we were worth about seven bucks in terms of, you know, enough whitewash to whitewash a chicken coop and get a couple nails out of you and uh, stuff like that. But it, isn't that fascinating? Just as the Bible says, uh, we came right up out of, 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 the, uh, of the earth. So he formed man out of the dust of the earth. Now, we can take uh, dirt or clay or whatever, and we can form something, uh, but we can't do what God did next, and that is he breathed into his nostrils, speaking of Adam, the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so God takes and he fashions man from the earth, and then he breathes into him, and God gives life. Life is uh, sacred. Life is something that is to be uh, handled as holy. It's something that he gives. It's something that he takes away. We're not to get uh, involved in that. And so he takes and he has the ability to do this, to, cre to create the body, then give life to it that, that only he can uh, bring here. So man, he didn't involve, evolve. He was created by God. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And so uh, toward the east, Eden was from the place that Adam was uh, created. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So lots of different kinds of trees, some uh, beautiful for looking at and shade and all, and others good for food. It's kind of nice to have a mix of that. I mean, I like orchards, but I like to see the redwoods uh, up in you know, in Northern California and all, and vice versa. So uh, there they are. They're all created. And 
represented in the Garden uh, of Eden. The tree of life was also uh, in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. More about those a little bit later. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. So you've got this mist, but you've also got rivers that are represented on the earth at that time and uh, specifically related to the Garden of Eden. And from there at the point of the Garden of Eden, it parted and it became four riverheads. The name of the first is uh, Pishon, which is uh, the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, uh, where there is gold. Boy, that'd start a gold rush, wouldn't it? And, uh, and the gold of that land is good. Uh, Delium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. Don't confuse that with the spring of Gihon that we read about in the New Testament. It's a, it's a different uh, Gihon. And it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia. But don't assume that this is in modern-day Ethiopia. Remember, when the flood comes and the whole foundation of the earth is broken up by the waters underground, the, the uh, makeup of, of the planet and where things flowed and where they didn't flow, everything changed. And so, uh, but it does seem to be in that general area uh, of the world that these uh, rivers flowed. And then the name of the third le- uh, river is Hidekel. The Hebrew for uh, Hidekel is Tigris, and so we recognize that as a, a river uh, that's named the Tigris today. And it is the one that uh, goes uh, toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so two of these rivers, the Hidekel and, and uh, the Pishon, we have no idea where they were from, we don't know anything more than the biblical description that's given here because of the flood and the changes as a result of it. Uh, We recognize the Tigris and the Euphrates being a part of modern-day Iraq, very much in, uh, in uh, modern history today and all. But again, were, were they absolutely in Iraq, uh, you know, where they're located today? Are they the same rivers? We don't know. But it does seem that the Garden of Eden was in that particular region of the world, whether it was in kind of the North Africa where it all comes together, the Middle East right there, or or whatever, but that does seem to be the cradle of of civilization in terms of the Garden of Eden. And then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. Now this is interesting. It's a perfect garden. There are no weeds, there's no thistles, no hoses, no sprinkler systems, no drip systems, no irrigation, you know, no weeding, no pesticides, no anything. Now that's a garden I want to tend. That's a good one. But the fascinating thing to me is that he creates man, puts him in a perfect environment, but he gives him something to do. Gives him something to do. And we have been created right from the beginning, the original creation. We have been created to be about God's business. And uh, the old saying, idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. And so we're to be busy even in the very beginning. It's interesting, several years ago where we had in the United States this entire kind of welfare state that was uh, becoming generational, two, three, four generations of people on welfare and all. Nobody, the kids and grandkids being raised in an environment where they'd never seen anyone work. Not good. Never, even in the Garden of Eden, God God said, that's not a way. God has created us to be productive. Now, this labor was nothing like what it takes to get something out of the earth today. 
but it was something that occupied him. It was something that was needed to be done, and it was good for him uh, to be busy doing something. And so he was uh, told there to tend and to keep the garden there in uh, the Garden of Eden. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. It's just like, I mean, he just, he just points him out to all of these trees. He says, Now look at all these, every tree freely, you know, and uh, you, you may, may eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So God, when he takes and he, he's going to let him know about this tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. We'll speak about it in just a moment. But when God introduces the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they are prohibited from eating, he introduces that tree but by talking to them about all these other trees that they're free to eat. Now, Satan is going to come against Eve in just another chapter, and he's going to make her forget all about these other trees and put her focus on the one tree she can't have. And, and the whole thing flips around, and, and we're prone to that. Uh, take our eyes off of all the blessings and look at the one thing that, you know, God has prohibited, you know, in, in, in our lives, you know, comparatively speaking in terms of, of, of the amount. Why would God put that tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in that garden, knowing the trouble that would come out of it. I don't have the slightest idea, but it's a thought. I mean, you ought to really think, think about that. It, God had to include in his creation, he had to include a restriction, a prohibition, and, and that's why it existed there. Without a choice, without man having a choice, to obey God or to disobey God, uh, without that choice, our obedience means comparatively nothing to him because it's a forced obedience. So we would be like robots in the Garden of Eden. Yes, we would love him. Yes, we would care for him. But uh, it wouldn't mean what it would mean if there was something that I had to say no to in order to love him and obey him. Having something that was an option to loving him and obeying him would then make the fact that I do love him and obey him meaningful to him, much more meaningful. So the option was given there in, in the Garden of Eden. So without, the, without that tree of the knowledge of, of good and, uh, and evil, Adam and Eve would have remained innocent, but they never would have been righteous. They would have never been righteous. In order to be actively righteous, I must have the opportunity to be unrighteous and then choose not to be unrighteous, but choose to obey the Lord, and then I'm able to be righteous before God. And so God puts that uh, um, uh, choice in, in the Garden of Eden. We talked about it a little bit in the book of Revelation, how sometimes, you know, for us as Christians in the United States of America, we're, we can be made to feel bad. You know? Sometimes if we're going to have a missionary come in or speak or something, and I say, you're not going to kill us, are you, today, and make us feel bad because we've got a car to drive and we have dessert with our dinner or something, you know, that kind of, and, and we're made sometimes to feel like we're just the least Christians in the whole world. And I'm not minimizing what God's people do all over the world. 
But God's people who are serious about him, no matter where they are in the world, they're serious about him. And it pleases God. And this is not the easiest place in the world to walk with God because we have so many options. It is a free society, which means there is, not, uh, there is tremendous freedom to choose sin and there is unbelievable access to sin for us as Christians in this culture, which makes our decision to say no to those things and to walk obediently to the Lord an even greater blessing to Him. So, so it isn't putting us down. This is a very interesting place in the world to walk with him and, and maybe unique in some respects. Certainly the Western world is uh, to be able to express our desire to live righteously for him and to bless his heart by saying no to these other things. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was intended to produce in Adam and Eve. Not to produce their fall. There was no need for them ever to fall, but to give them an opportunity to express a genuine love and desire and concern for the heart of, of God. And, and so the Lord spoke to him and said, listen, one prohibition, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the day that you eat of it. You will surely die. And then the Lord uh, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. He's talking about Adam, not, uh, not mankind in general. And, and so he, remember he's been saying it, it, it is good, it is good, it is very good, and now he says it is not good. And uh, so God looks at all of his creation at the end of chapter 1, and he said, all of it is very good. And he speaks of this as being not good, not because something is not good, but because something is incomplete. It can be better. And uh, he look, takes one look at Adam, the man, and says, this isn't good, this guy being alone. <laughs> and so he, God comes up with an idea. Uh, to rectify that, I will make him a helper comparable to him. Uh, in some versions, it's a helpmate. And literally, uh, speaking of the woman, uh, it is referring to a helper like uh, him, like man. And, uh, and so there's three reasons that the Lord creates uh, woman and Eve shall be called Eve later and so if we slip into back and forth you'll you'll understand three unique reasons for uh, her creation and uh, one is to be a companion to Adam because it's not good that man uh, should be uh, alone and in general that's that's true uh, there are some people that God calls both men and women and he gives them the gift of celibacy that they would not be distracted by marriage in their service to the Lord but that is a gift that God gives and if you don't have it you don't have it that's all there is to that and uh, you better marry uh, when God uh, in God's will and all of that and uh, wait for him to bring that person to you but uh, but so but there are people for whom it's fine but for everybody else it's it, it's wide open to to be married the average man is in need of companionship and a little bit of help uh, in life. Sometimes, you know, the w women squawk and look at the, you know, all this stuff is just going to pass away, all these ideas. We think we're so smart in this culture, and women are in a huff because they've been created as a helper to man, and all it means is that man needs help. You know that, and, um, and everything. And what, now you, you tell me this. 
which one of you women, don't shout out, but I mean, you talk to me afterward, but what woman among us, you didn't look at your husband and say, that guy needs help. <laughs> and the guy just looks around and she puts his clothes out or cook in the, the different things and, and all, and he looks by and says, I mean, it wouldn't be as good as it is right now, but I can get a buy without, you know. But in, in her mind, you know, and I'm not offending him, but in, in her mind, she thinks, my, this, this, I, I better marry this guy. He's not going to survive, you know, without me. And it's all part of the, I mean, the creation kind of, of thing here. It's good. It's good. And uh, there needs to be a little spice to life and a little different, you know, on, on, on all of this. So he needed companionship. Not good that man would uh, dwell alone. Number two, he needed uh, a helper. And man needs help. And, and Adam needed help in accomplishing all that God had called him to do. And uh, Eve was the help that he had created uh, for him uh, for that to be accomplished. And women can be very, very different from men in a lot of different ways. And uh, what Eve and any woman brings uh, to a man, talking about a godly situation, is, uh, is of a tremendous help uh, to him. So a helper comparable to him that is like him, possessing, uh, like him in the sense that she possesses spirituality and intelligence and personality. She's not less than man in any of these ways. But it, it's only that in marriage, God's purposes for those things uh, in her life are now applied in a different way than those same things are applied within the man. They become a team, and both of them are, are, are needed together uh, for that. And, and, and then the third reason, and he gets to it at the end of the chapter here a little bit, but uh, I, I think he talks about um, toward the end, yeah, verse 28 of chapter 1, where God said to Adam and Eve, and kind of the abbreviated count, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and, and all. So the, for the third reason is for uh, procreation and, and, and all the physical relationship between man and woman and, and that children would be born and that the earth would be uh, filled with uh, uh, people, not so much like us, but like Adam and Eve. That was the attention, but intention uh, originally, but that's another reason too. I, I think it's very, very good to understand and be reminded that the physical relationship between a man and a woman, husband and a wife, is that's God's invention. That's God's idea. God is the expert on that. Not Dr. Ruth or these silly columns that you read in the paper or hopefully you don't read, but you see the headline, they're just ridiculous. There's this goofy thing in our culture because our culture is becoming more and more immoral that the more experienced a person is in disobeying God's plan, the more of an expert that they are on the physical relationship. And that is not true. God is the expert on the physical relationship. He knows where it's to be expressed, how it's to be expressed in a way that doesn't hurt anyone, that doesn't degrade heaven or creation, and, and uh, the way that is satisfying and fulfilling for the husband and wife involved. No one can read Song of Solomon and uh, not get the idea that those two folks are enjoying themselves. I'm sorry. I mean, I read it, and I, I get the commentaries, and I read them all too, and it's, you know, and okay, Song of Solomon is all about the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. All right, I see that there. 
but I see a lot more there. I mean, there's everything but Barry White singing in the background. <laughs> I mean, they're having a good time there on this. We won't go any further than that, your children in the room and, and all of these things. But it, it, it's, it's a reason for the creation. Now, verse 19, let's move quickly. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And this was an expression of dominion. Uh, to name these animals was uh, a reinforcement of the fact that man has dominion over these animals. Remember when the three Hebrew children with Daniel were taken uh, captive to Babylon. What did King Nebuchadnezzar, first thing he did, he renamed them. And that was communicating to them, I have dominion over you. I'm the one that's in charge here, and I'll name you whatever I want to name you. So it was an expression of, of dominion. But it isn't just that. There's a purpose behind the naming of these animals. And uh, so Adam, verse 20, gave names to uh, all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. Uh, but for Adam, and here it is, there was found no helper comparable to him. So he's naming these animals. It seems as if they're coming in twos, male and female and all. And, and as he gets done naming all of these animals, it kind of uh, dawns on him that uh, he isn't paired up. There isn't a, a, a helper comparable to him. And what God is doing is God's going to bring Eve on the scene. There's no doubt about that. But he's preparing uh, Adam for it. Adam's realizing, all right, I have a need in my life. I'm different from everybody else here. And, and God knows how to prepare us for the man or the woman, in this case the woman, that he's going to bring into our life. He just doesn't go, boom, and there she is. You know, well, wait a second, I don't, what, how does she fit into the picture? He creates a longing in him, a desire for this companionship and all. And then as that's developed and nurtured, he brings Eve uh, on uh, the scene. So first there's got to be that sense within Adam that there's something missing uh, from his uh, life. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And this is ancient anesthesia and uh, just goes out. He slept, and then God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And so God then forms Eve from the rib. Now, sometimes you can look at this and say, oh, he got that rib, and then he just built this whole thing around the rib. And one of the great things about uh, living in the times in which we live is is science keeps moving forward and all these things that can kind of testify to other things. And, and maybe he took the marrow out of the bone. I mean, look what we're able to do in terms of cloning, just sinful fallen man and all. So God is able to take the cells or take the DNA, do some changing of the chromosomes and that kind of thing, and create here as a woman who is just like man in so many different ways, but with some very, very uh, important uh, differences. And so he, 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 he takes that rib, takes whatever is in that rib, he kind of keeps it all, just, he just describes it so, uh, you know, concisely and all, and out of it comes uh, a woman. And, uh, and then notice what the Lord does. This is great. This is, he's, he walks her down the aisle. <laughs> it's, so it's the first wedding right here. 
in, in, in uh, God institutes marriage. And notice what he brought her to the man. I wonder what, what his face looked like as he brings this woman to Adam. Adam has a sense of how incomplete he is. God knows how excited he's going to be, you know, to, to uh, uh, receive this you know, gift and creation uh, from the Lord. And so the Lord then uh, brings uh, uh, Eve to Adam. So Adam came out of the ground. Eve came out of, of Adam. And, uh, and, and the Lord brings him to Adam. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, which means out of man, because she was taken out of man and uh, so beautiful story there is I guess you should know that there's a, comp a competing uh, creation story related to all this and, and Eve and conversation that occurred between uh, God and Adam and and God said to Adam listen I'm going to create a beautiful woman for you she's gonna love you she's gonna care for you she's gonna adore you she's gonna hang on every single word you say but it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam said, what can I get for a rib? I really like that joke a lot. I'm just teasing, though. But just want you to know, I don't believe it. I'm just telling you what's out there. I think Matthew Henry had it a lot closer to the truth. And I remember hearing this. Uh, in the course of my Christian life, and, and I like it, and, that, and I think everyone ought to have it sewn into their heart. He wrote and he said, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And I like that as much as the first time I heard it, and, and I think that captures the feel of it. And so God now uh, presents Eve uh, in, in the marriage here, and, uh, and, and Adam is so excited to see his wife and all. And then God, in verse 24, encapsulates marriage in three great uh, words, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. mother number one word, leave and be joined, cleave in the, Old Test, in the Old King James, and be joined to, number two, his wife, and then number three, they shall become one flesh. And those are three very important uh, characteristics of a, a successful marriage. There must be the leaving of, of the former households and authority structure. Now, you're talking about Middle Eastern culture, families, extended families, very, very close. In fact, uh, the homes when you were, a son was going to marry and all, uh, the house would merely be enlarged now to accommodate his, the, the new family that was going to come out of that. So it doesn't mean you disregard your family or disown them or never talk to them again or anything, but there is the recognition that when a man and a woman marry, that a new family unit in terms of authority and all has been established. The place of authority that mom and dad in the husband's life, mom and dad in the wife's life, the, the position of authority that they had in the raising of those children, that is a former authority. That new husband is the new head of that household. And that wife is, is now it, it, the most important relationship in her life after the Lord now is that husband. 
And, and that, that requires an adjustment from moms and dads sometimes to let that happen. They need to leave. Something new, something important, something that I am not to intrude in it has been established. And one of the things that we do now is, is for those of us who are parents and the children are grown and all, and all of this has taken place, is our place of influence now in their lives occurs through prayer or when we are invited by them to speak into the situation. Also, it means for the new husband and wife, no running home to mommy and daddy. No running back. That's not an option to run back there. There is the leaving on it. But then also the cleaving to be joined to, and that word cleave is an interesting one. It's a kind of word that's used for welding two pieces of metal together where you can't uh, pull those two pieces of metal apart without doing great damage uh, to the pieces of metal. In other words, it speaks about a full and a total commitment now to the marriage. Now, now you, sometimes we look at things and we say, there's never been a greater attack on marriage in the history of the world. I don't know about that. Pretty rough in Roman times where men regularly had their wife, they had their mistresses, they had their all kinds of options in, in that way. It's crazy, very immoral culture and all. So there's always been a fight against marriage in, 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 human, in human history. And, and one of the most important things in a marriage is that cleaving. They both are making a commitment to this other per person until death us do part. That's the kind of commitment that is needed for successful marriage because of all that comes against that marriage. That's why when I officiate at a wedding and I pull out all the old stuff for richer, for poorer, you know, for better, for worse, and good health and bad health, you know, the whole deal, that commitment, total commitment, we're talking about cleaving now in that part of, of the ceremony, and it's so important. Option is divorce, not an option in it, a total commitment. We're glued together, and, and this is for life, uh, uh, barring death or, or sexual immorality or my partner uh, leaving me because uh, of my faith. And, so, and then number three, they become one flesh. Again, the two have now become something one in God's eyes, also speaking of, of the physical relationship that can be expressed in the marriage relationship. And you notice in verse 25, they were both naked, the man and the woman, and they were not ashamed. And so uh, the innocence of that uh, Garden of Eden, sometimes you read in the newspaper, and different things where, you know, there's so many goofy groups in the world today where the nudists, you know, they want to have nudity everywhere, and there it is right in the Bible at the beginning. This is pre-fall, folks. <laughs> now you want to have nudity post-fall. Let's just put it this way. That was then, this is now. That's an entirely different thing. So you've got to understand the divisions within the Bible here. Wouldn't be good. God's going to clothe them later after the fall and, and that's an important thing that that needs to happen and so there's no shame there uh, in in the uh, uh, nakedness there in the garden and uh, and just beautiful beautiful innocence there it is interesting I think to realize that of all of God's creatures as far as we know only man uh, wears clothing it's kind of a badge of our sinful uh, nature isn't it you don't see animals, you don't see brown bears like in a big jacket or something, Bermuda shorts, concerned about fashion or anything like that. So, so it, it just goes all the way back. Why do we do what we do? Because we're unlike the rest of the creation. 
the, the historical account of the Bible and all. Sometimes you do see animals clothed, people with those little vests on their little dogs and stuff. But that's just people going crazy over their animals <laughs> and stuff. I'm just kidding, but um, kind of. <laughs> chapter 3. Now, chapter 3 is a, uh, uh, is a very, very important uh, chapter in the Bible. I mean, one of the most important in, in the whole Bible. Without it, we wouldn't be able to make uh, any sense of this world that, that we live in or make any sense uh, of, of ourselves. I mean, if you were without chapter 3, we finish there at the end of chapter 1, and everything is uh, good, everything is very good, and then you get into chapter 4, and Cain's killing Abel, and people are boasting against God and all these things. You go, what in the world happened? I mean, we wouldn't understand what happened to the world apart from uh, uh, Genesis here, uh, chapter 3. It tells us what in the world uh, happened. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said or has God really said you shall not eat of every tree uh, of the garden? Now by the time Satan appears now in the historical record of, of Genesis, he's already fallen. He's already, in the words of, of Jude, he has uh, left his first estate. So sin has already been introduced into the creation, not into man, but into the creation through the fall and the rebellion uh, of, of Satan. Satan was created a very, very high-ranking angel. In fact, when you get the descriptions of him, uh, he's described in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, his fall is described in the book of Isaiah. And as, it's, as he is described, the stones that made up, you know, his uh, appearance, his exterior, and the beauty of him as, as a creation, he seemed to have been like a worship leader and able to... Um, point people to God to, you know, lead in worship of God in an in a, a, a incredible way. This is what he was created for. And the Bible says, again in the book of Isaiah, that when this whole thing comes to an end and mankind sees the devil, when you and I see the devil, we're not going to go, ha, a little different shade of red than I thought on that little jumpsuit he's wearing. He won't look anything like that. He will be off the charts unbelievable in terms of just pure beauty outwardly of God's creation. Inwardly, it's a completely different story. But outwardly, the Bible says we will look at him and say, he's the one that caused all of this trouble. How could anyone or anything that beautiful create the kind of trouble that he did. But he falls. His rebellion against God was one, Isaiah records it, where he says uh, the, the essence of his, his revolt that he leads against God is a series of five I wills. I will, I will, I will, I will be like the Most High God. I will sit on the mount, and I will. And it was the exalting of his will above the will of God. And he led a rebellion against God. And a third of the angels, were told, followed him, probably followed him in that 
that rebellion. They are known, what is known as demons today, and they followed him in that, that rebellion uh, against God. And so all of that has taken place uh, somewhere between chapter 1, verse 31, and, uh, and chapter 3, uh, verse uh, one, since angels were created beings uh, in, in chapter 1 verse 31 when God said everything was very good that must have been uh, his assessment of them uh, too so we don't know when Satan fell couldn't have been too long though because uh, Adam and Eve don't have one, two, three, four children or anything like that in, in, the, in the time being. So he probably fell pretty quickly. Notice that he's described as taking the form of a serpent uh, for this temptation uh, of, of Eve. And uh, that this it talks about the serpent. Sometimes a person can say, well, where do you go? how do you jump from serpent to the devil? Well, uh, the Holy Spirit's commentary on all of this um, in, in the New Testament uh, makes very, very clear that this serpent is none other than the devil himself, taking, making use of a serpent for the purposes of his temptation. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, we're told, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him up for a thousand years. And the same thing is told in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that serpent of old called uh, the devil and Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 14. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. And no wonder, as, as Paul writes of this serpent, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Now, one of the interesting things about the devil, and, and God speaks to, uh, to us about it uh, right here in his introduction, is that he's cunning. Uh, he's very, very subtle, the devil is. And uh, one of the things that the devil tries to do, he's so subtle that sometimes you don't even know he's working until he's been working quite a while. So, um, and, and that's a great advantage. When you're in a battle with someone or in a fight with somebody, the longer you can go, unrecognized in that battle that gives you a tremendous advantage in the battle people don't know who they're fighting against and and so he's very subtle he knows how to cut uh, to come across he knows how uh, to make himself appear to be something that he isn't you know kind of a friend and just have a little simple little conversation with a woman at the base of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, uh, and, and all, and, and, but what he's uh, about is something entirely different. So he's, he's subtle. Now, because he's so subtle, one of the things that we need in order to recognize him being at work is to understand his devices. And that's why Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians church, and he spoke to them about not being ignorant of Satan's devices. And we must not be ignorant of them if we're going to recognize Satan quickly in his devices within our life and then to deal with his attack in, in, a, in a powerful uh, way. And so his devices are wonderfully exposed here uh, in this chapter. Would you notice that when uh, God, the, uh, Satan speaks to the woman, he says, Hath, Has God indeed said? Satan is not an atheist. He is not an agnostic. He doesn't want, wander around wondering if God exists or not. I think he does. I, I'm not really sure, though. No, that's not what he does. He knows God exists. In the entire demonic realm, there's not one atheist, demon, 
There's not one agnostic demon. Continually when Jesus came onto the scene and he would begin to deal with things like, for instance, casting the demons, the the legion of demons, 6,000 demons out of the man of Gadara, they immediately referred to him as the Son of God, as God there. No, the demons know. They knew, constantly confessing Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, as, as, as God uh, himself. And, and so they know Jesus is the Messiah. They know that, that God exists. Now, Satan uses, uh, to, you know, five different devices here against Eve. And the first one is there in verse 1 where he plants doubt in Eve's mind concerning the Word of God. He says the first four words out of his mouth, Has God indeed said? And many, many translations put it, Did God really say? So instead of coming to her and saying, Listen, you, uh, both you and I know that you can eat of all the trees in, in the garden. I mean, freely eat of all the trees in the, in the garden. But uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of that in the day that you'll die. And so nobody in their right mind would even be found around that tree, much less eat from it. That's what a friend would tell you, especially if he found you at the base of that tree. That's not what Satan does. He comes on, on the scene, and he begins to, in, 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 instead of encouraging her in just the black and white clarity of God's commands, he comes in and he starts to question the Word of God. Has God really said? Did he really say that? Can you believe that? Did he say, did he, did he say what I huh? I think this is open to debate here. And he, and he invites her to join him in a conversation that questions the reliability of the Word of God. And he's attempting to introduce doubt into her mind related to the Word of God. Did he really say that to you? Does his Word really say that? Now, Satan, it's interesting because he doesn't go in for the kill immediately. He's going to do that in in, uh, verse 4. You shall not surely die. Openly deny uh, the Word of God. But he's very, very subtle. He he takes his time. He's not in a hurry uh, on things. And this initial part of his attack, he's just content to just plant a seed of doubt in her mind concerning the Word of God. Happens all the time, doesn't it? Da Vinci Code. It's a piece of fiction. But the foreword in it, he writes, these are the accurate accounts and all that you're going to be reading is true and all of this design. Sometimes on the History Channel or A&E or whatever, these kind of deals, they'll, and especially at Easter and Christmas and all, they'll do these specials like the In Search of the Historical Christ. And, and it's just filled with, usually with, all kinds of nonsense and casting doubt upon the biblical account uh, related to Jesus and related to the Word of God. If there was one thing, I mean, just one lesson I would want every single Christian to take away from this temptation of Eve by the devil, it would be this, that anytime you come into contact with anyone or anything that attempts to cast doubt in your mind related to the Word of God, you are dealing with the devil and you are dealing with him at his most dangerous. Because the Word of God is the one thing he cannot stand against. And that's why Jesus used it three times against him in the temptation. If he can get you to throw down your sword, the sword of the Spirit, he has no answer for it. He can't defeat you as long as it's in your hand and you use it. He must get you to throw down your sword. So he causes, starts with the, the doubt. And he comes as a serpent. 
doesn't know kind of a threat or anything like that, doesn't come, hi, I'm the devil and I'm out to destroy your life. He's, he's a lot more subtle than that. And I don't care if the person who comes into your life to cast doubt on the word of the reliability of the word of God in your life is a friend. I don't care if it's your mom or dad. I don't care if it's your aunt or your uncle or a school teacher or someone at school. I don't care if it's anyone on the television. I don't care if it's anyone that's written a book or written a song. Or I don't care if it's from behind a pulpit. If they cast doubt on the Word of God, you're dealing with the devil in that. And it needs to be recognized. Satan, he loves to hide behind, you know, appearances and all of these things. And you've got to look past the serpent. Now, we think of serpents as a terrible thing. So, boy, I mean, if God, if, if the devil came across, a serpent was a wonderful animal at that time. In fact, from the curse that happens, we're probably not going to get to that till next week. But as God curses uh, Satan, he says concerning uh, the serpent, now you're going to crawl on your belly and eat the dust for the rest of your, your life and, and all the rest of your existence. So from the Garden of Eden, apparently the serpent at this time was very, very different from what we uh, know today. Now, this may be a woman's worst nightmare, walking serpents. My, I thought it was bad enough that they crawl anywhere, but um, they probably walked at that time. Some scholars believe that they had wings or this kind of a deal or something. It was a beautiful creature of, of God's creation that he takes possession of now to deliver the message. Anyone that doesn't know the Lord, is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is wide open to be indwelt by the devil and used by him to cast out on the Word of God in your life. So you can't look at the package or the credentials or the whatever and say, no, this isn't the devil. He'll use anybody to do that. So be careful related to that. Now, Eve's response in verses uh, 2 and 3 uh, to this initial attack, stellar. God bless her. She stumbles after this. But the first, she took the t first volley very, very well. And, and the woman said to the serpent, Now, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, sometimes people will make a... Uh, an observation that she adds something uh, to God's revelation and saying you shouldn't touch it. Remember, God gave that commandment to Adam. Adam has then spoken this to Eve. God doesn't seem displeased with her response here. This initial sin into human creation was the disobedience of partaking of the tree. She doesn't lie here. So a very, very fair representation of God's word and what he said related to that tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. So she does just exactly what Jesus modeled for us when the devil comes against us. And Jesus, remember, following his water baptism early in his public ministry, 40 days out in the wilderness and, uh, and uh, no, no eating and, and all, comes to the end of it, he's hungry. Satan catches him in a physically uh, kind of weak state and, and all tries to come in and tempt him right at the beginning of, of, of his public ministry. And each device that, that Satan brings against him is, are the devices that he's going to use against Eve here. And what Jesus does is he answers each one of the temptations by quoting the Bible. Satan comes with one thing and Jesus said, it is written, quoted from Deuteronomy, 
Satan tempted him another way. Jesus said, it is written, quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. He comes and he tempts him a third way. Jesus says, it is written, and he quotes again from the book of Deuteronomy. All three times from the book of Deuteronomy. And, and the interesting thing is the theme of the book of Deuteronomy is obedience. Obedience to God. But Eve here, she responds with an it is written to the first attack, but she doesn't keep it up. She, she falters in the second one. It says when Jesus responded to the devil with the word of God, the sword of the spirit, when Satan attacks us and we respond with the word of God, just see in your mind spiritually a sword being plunged into him. He can only take so many of those. And, and so he takes, he's not making any headway with Jesus. He has no answer for the word of God. So he departs, the Bible says, for a more convenient time. He doesn't stop. He's going to come back. But, for, but he stops in, in, in that particular attack. He has no wor answer for the word of God. If we will stick with the word of God to answer his lies. So she does very, very good here on the very uh, first one. The problem is that she doesn't keep responding to Satan's attack with uh, the Word of God. The next time she tries to uh, address his temptation with her flesh rather than with the Word of, of God. Now notice in verse 4, and we'll just cover this much uh, tonight, and then we'll pick the rest of it up next week. So you don't think we're going to go till 9 tonight. And then the serpent said... Uh, to the woman. She, he listens. He's patient. He listens to what it is that she's saying and all. And then he just flat out says to her, you will not surely die. Now he just, he shows his, his true colors in the whole thing and he just flatly denies the truth of God's word. God said in the day that you will eat of it, you'll, tr you'll surely die. How, uh, how did they die on the day that they ate of, of the forbidden fruit? They didn't die physically because we're in this room. But they died spiritually, and then death was introduced into the human, uh, human condition. And so here, here he takes and he just flatly calls the word of God a lie. Now it's interesting that here is the devil calling God a liar. In, jo in John's Gospel, chapter 8, when Jesus speaks of the devil, Jesus calls him a liar. And that's the truth about him. But uh, Satan is good at pointing fingers in all different directions and accusing everyone else, so, so he doesn't uh, you know, become the center of, of attention. But notice in verse 4 how bold the devil becomes. He gets, if, if, he can, if he can get you talking, <laughs> and this is a great, don't talk to the devil unless the only thing that should ever come out of our mind in talking to the devil is a verse from the Bible. I have mentioned in the past this one book. It's an author who I, I really love this author, but I hate the title of the one, the book that he wrote, and the title is, I Talk to the Devil. I talk to the devil. I said, devil? And, you know, so, but, uh, and, and so maybe if you're going to talk to the devil, you've got to do what Jesus does and stay right with the Word of God. Best not to talk to the devil. And, uh, and so here he is, he's got a conversation going now and, uh, and all, and, and he's going to try for the home run here on, on the whole deal, grows very bold, abandons all subtlety, and, and just says, God's a liar in what he said. And you look at how bold our nation has become and our world has become. 
God's word just, God is called a liar every day in this country in a thousand different ways. And we live here, so we hear it. We hear the accusation of the devil a hundred different ways through a thousand different lips all the time, every week that we live here. So he just comes out with this, this bold thing, and, and he's very proud, very confident in where he is in this temptation right now. But, you know, uh, the Bible teaches that uh, pride comes before destruction, and before the whole thing plays out, he's going to be in some real trouble. There's an interesting uh, interview in uh, Newsweek magazine, uh, June 26, 2006, just this last week or so, with the uh, Bishop V. Jean uh, Robinson, who was the first openly gay bishop to be uh, consecrated in the Episcopal Church. And of course, it's created quite an uproar within the Episcopal Church, and there's a lot of problems in some of these denominations with uh, having it is written be the standard of right and wrong and all, rather than Satan's devices here. Has God really said, oh boy, let's us debate it and, and decide and all. That's a complete mishandling of the temptation that's facing entire denomination. But Newsweek asked an amazing question. I don't know, this guy had to be born again or something that was doing the interview. He said to Mr. Robinson, he said, how do you reconcile what the Bible says about homosexuality with your lifestyle? Mr. Robinson's response. Now remember, this guy is, you know, ha has been uh, the uh, bishop for the entire Episcopal uh, Church. And he responded, the people who are taking the Bible literally are absolutely outside of the Anglican tradition. Wow. Have no hope of standing if that's the attitude toward the Word of God, and I don't believe necessarily what he said is true. I don't know anything about the Anglican church. And, and so Satan is very, very clever, but I have to stop, and it's a terrible place to stop right here. But verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will sh not surely die. Boom, just hits her with, with that statement, but he immediately follows it with his next piece of attack against her because he can't let something that bold just sit there like that he's got to now direct her thinking away from processing that biblically and he uses an amazing device against her but we'll pick that up uh, next week as we continue our journey through the scriptures you know if you had a real pastor he would stop at the end of chapters but you've got to deal with what you got let's stand together If you don't know the Lord tonight, uh, you need to do that. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. You've been created for a personal relationship with God, and Jesus has made a way for that to happen. And uh, heaven and hell hangs in the balance. They're both real tonight. They're more real than the room we're standing in. And uh, what you do with Christ is going to determine where you end up for eternity and God wants you in heaven with him and uh, these men and women would love to answer your questions pray with you to invite the Lord Jesus into your heart begin a relationship with God tonight if you need prayer for anything tonight they'd love to pray with you and to pray for you let's pray together Lord thank you so much for your word and all that is uh, found here in it and what a broad cross-section of things we've even been able to discuss tonight and we pray that you would take it
by your Holy Spirit, you would nurture it in our lives and everywhere that it applies, Lord, to our marriages, everywhere it applies to the places that you have put us in schools and in business and in neighborhoods and all these devices of the enemy that are around us, Lord. We pray that you would help us to recognize his devices even uh, even greater and be able to stand uh, against them. Thank you for the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, that the devil has no answer for it. Where would we be in this world without your Word? The whole place would be overrun with lies. We thank you for your word. We pray that you give us a great week of building us up in your truth this week as we continue to draw close to you and uh, search out your word. Meet with us through your word this week. Bless us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.